KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, we're bringing in experts to discuss the sexual violence that occurred on a SEPTA train, leaving the city and nation reeling. This is one of the most underreported crimes, which then makes it really hard to know how often are bystanders not intervening or intervening. Our Newsmaker of the Week has been a longtime advocate for survivors of domestic violence, especially in the LGBTQ community. It is evident that domestic violence is this, the gun violence story untold. Our Changemaker of the Week is fostering a new view on life for Philadelphia communities. We believe that healing is holistic. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. And before we get started this week, I think it's important that we make our listeners aware that we will be discussing sexual assault in this week's Flashpoint panel. If you or someone you know needs assistance, there is a local 24-hour sexual assault hotline. The number is 215-985-3333. Now, the city has been reeling this week from a gruesome incident that took place last week on the SEPTA Market Frankfurt line. A woman who was riding the train when she was attacked by a man, she was sexually assaulted and then raped. Now, this story has gained national traction, but the larger conversation we want to have today is about bystander intervention and the actions we can take if we ever encounter an event like this one. Joining us today are two women who have dedicated their lives and work to advocacy, healing, education, and prevention around sexual violence. Teresa so White Walston and Rachel Copen are from the organization War Women Against Rape. Thank you so much for joining us today on Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Now, I think the question that uh, everyone is grappling with right now is how does something like this happen? What can you tell us about what happens when witnesses see something like this? So it's really hard for us to be able to know exactly what someone who has witnessed this is going through. And and our focus is really to center the experience of the survivor. But what we can speak generally about is how trauma affects individuals. And so when someone experiences a trauma, that can be because it's happening directly to them or because they're witnessing a trauma that's happening to another person. And so when we know when people are in situations that are traumatic, they can have reactions where they are either frozen or they are so fearful that they're fleeing, or they might not be able to really understand what they're seeing and and can't actually like make sense of what is visually in front of them. Um, And then there's also something called fawning that people will do, um, where they're trying to appease the person that's harming to try to mitigate the harm. So, you know, those are the responses that can happen, fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn you know, we can kind of maybe try to put bystander reactions into that context. And I think one thing that really resonates with us is people trying to understand what being a good bystander interventionist means. Absolutely. And so, you know, with bystander intervention, the first thing that you want for all bystanders is for uh, that bystander to consider their own personal safety. 
we know that in the media, there's been a number of stories about the different levels of violence in the city of Philadelphia. And it's highly possible uh, that those individuals might have uh, considered that. And that might have been one of the reasons that people might not have, you know, moved forward as rapidly as we would have liked. The most important thing is that an individual calls 911. I think in, uh, you know, today's uh, world, most people have a cell phone. And so even though you may not put yourself at risk, and again, we would like for individuals to consider their own personal safety, especially in proximity to a crime. But 911 is always available and we want to be able to utilize that. And, and that's first. And, you know, the, the average person is not trained. When we teach bystander engagement, one of the things that we do is help people through role plays and, and process. Uh, what would you do if you were in a situation, you know? And so when a person already has a strategy in place, they've had an opportunity to kind of practice what that strategy may look like in various situations. Then when they face the situation, then they can move into a strategy. But, you know, the reality of that is that that takes a process of time. Uh, we know that individuals who are, uh, you know, individuals that take self-defense and we think, which is a great thing. And we, we really advocate for people to do what they need to do for their own personal safety and in their own best interest. But it's something that you want to continue. And, and because, you know, it's not until you get into a situation that you can say what you would do or what you would not do. But definitely uh, observing a situation, removing yourself to safety and calling 911 is really still ultimately the first step to safety in many cases, because we don't know what the uh, perpetrator is doing, what he or she may have or they may have. So, you know, you have to really look at those uh, factors when thinking about safety and intervention in a situation. The accounts have changed a bit. Some people have went back on on what they said about people sitting around videoing while this was uh, happening. So what I'm hearing is that there could have been a lot of factors at play, but this is exactly why you have a bystander intervention program, right? Absolutely. We train in bystander engagement and actually as a result of this situation. And so with that program, if people are interested, they could just, you know, reach out to us, go into our website. We actually have a program request form and people can just type in, you know, that they're interested in the bystander engagement training. What we try to do is talk to individuals and assess what their concerns are, what their needs are. Some of the bystander work that we want to think about in terms of sexual violence is really preparing uh, parents and families. And we do our very best to connect with parents and families around looking out for what an offender, you know, or perpetrator, what their activities are. And we recognize that they will groom an entire family and it could be uh, the person least likely. This particular case that has gained national attention, it's not the normal. It's a stranger upon stranger, as we term what we know in the work that we do at war and across uh, the state. Uh, we have counterparty organizations is that more times than, uh, you know, imaginable that the individuals who do the perpetration are people who have close access to the survivor. So with children, we know the stats range somewhere between 90 to 95%. And then with adults, it could be 80 to 85 through acquaintance rape or date rape, things like that. This particular incident is not the normal. And so we want to let your listeners and viewers know that. 
so that they are aware of, don't just get focused on this. We want you to be a part of the bigger prevention picture and understand who the real offenders may be and let us help you, you know, uh, raise protection for your family and your community. And Rachel, are you able to talk to us, you know, about the statistics, how many unreported cases there are, because maybe people are not able to recognize that something really awful like this happened to them? It's thought of that sexual violence crimes are one of the most underreported crimes, and there's many, many reasons why. Sometimes people do not report because they do not feel like they will be believed. They will not report because of the stigma that they feel or that they feel from their close community. And then sometimes people don't report because it's not safe for them to report. They might fear retaliation from the perpetrator or the perpetrator's family or friends or acquaintances. It is thought of that this is one of the most underreported crimes, which then makes it really hard to know how often are bystanders not intervening or intervening, at least for females, about over half report rapes happen from intimate partners and 40% of rapes are happening from acquaintances. So if you're thinking about bystander intervention, it might actually be bystanders are not going to be strangers in those situations. They're going to be immediate support from family. So one of the things that our organization does is we have a program called Significant Other where people can learn how to support their beloved survivor in the best way so they can learn a trauma-informed approach to how to really guide their loved one through this experience and maybe avoid some of the more common things that you'll hear which is you're strong you'll get over it you know those those aren't always the best approaches to help a survivor and instead it's i'm here for you i'm listening i believe you I know that you all do a lot of work with the victim as well. So, you know, I want to take a step back here. I know this this is probably possibly the worst event that has ever happened in this woman's life. And um, now it's being broadcast for the world to kind of digest and see. So how should we be handling this this traumatic incident with care while also fostering thoughtful conversations around it as well? Thank you so much for, for asking that question. I think that starting this conversation off by offering a trigger warning is a great example of how to engage in these kinds of conversations. Really being mindful about these trauma-informed approaches, really honoring confidentiality of survivors and, and placing it within their own choice of when and how to share their story and to who to share their story to. And then ultimately, always having the message of believing survivors. It unfortunately is kind of pervasive in our society to have victim blaming messages. And, you know, part of our prevention work, in addition to our um, direct healing work, is to really dismantle those victim blaming messages that aren't as apparent as as they, they seem at times. And being open to having these kinds of conversations and really looking at, you know, that those thoughts about survivors, even just referring to victims as survivors or even allowing survivors and victims to choose how to refer to them. Some prefer to be referred to as victims. Those are all important 
ways to get at what your your question is addressing. Teresa, do you have anything to add to that? You know, not inquiring, asking intrusive questions. Uh, we often don't think about that. You know, there's been a lot over, as we know, the last couple of days about this particular conversation and this incident. And I think um, what to me would be helpful is to, to be very focused on a larger picture that there are a number of individuals, unfortunately, in this particular scenario. And that as a community, we want to be very sensitive to those people that are in our small circle that we may not even know are survivors or victims, depending upon how they would like to be referred to. So I think while incidents like this, you know, catapult this, you know, into the forefront and it becomes a conversation, we want to be respectful of the privacy of all people, you know, all parties involved, but also just in general, let's let this be an opportunity where we become more sensitive around this entire issue so that there is some, you know, something good for lack of a better word that can come out about this. We want to support all survivors. Uh, We term survivors at war because we really are focused on helping people rebuild their lives and regain control of their lives and move their lives forward in a positive and a healthy, safe manner. And so we, we want to continue to let things like this be a touch point where just as a society, we realize we need to, to do better. Can we be more supportive of a society of survivors? Can we do things, uh, you know, as a public to eliminate sexual assault? One of war's missions is to eliminate all forms of sexual assault. And, you know, people think that's a lofty goal, but I think in terms of how we treat people is a a step in a positive direction. If we have compassion and empathy uh, for all victims uh, and survivors. So, you know, just being able to use this as not something that happens this week and we don't continue to make progress towards sustaining the support around people who have been harmed through sexual, you know, assault uh, would be very, very beneficial to the larger picture. And I want to dig a little more into language. We've seen the word rape and then we've seen sexual assault. What is the difference and what should we be using? Well, at war, we kind of, and Rachel will, you know, add in or or co-sign it. Uh, But what we try to do is work from the framework of the law enforcement lens. So, you know, sexual violence is a spectrum. You know, a sexual assault is a spectrum. We have the, when we're teaching uh, in in community, we, we talk about sexual assault instances of it where there's no touching and then there's some touching and then there's much touching. So you're looking at the spectrum. So we know that street harassment is, you know, and and inappropriate comments towards any individual in a sexual manner. That's the no touch. We also have the voyeurism, you know, especially now today with people recording everything and posting everything. That's the no touch. And then, of course, anytime there is contact is where you start to move into sexual assault. And of course, rape being the most egregious form um, for women uh, uh, is, is rape. And so, and I say that because then we also have the term IDSI, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, which is something that, you know, depending on how law enforcement, what's happening. So, and I guess in a nutshell, you're not going to get one clear charge. You're going to get multiple charges if you ever find yourself on the end of having to deal with law enforcement. So, but it just depends on the level and the intensity of the assault. And I don't know, Rachel, if there's more to add to that. 
I think you you know the way we kind of exactly what Teresa is saying. The way we look at this is sexual violence is a spectrum from minimal contact to maximum contact, and sexual assault is kind of like an umbrella term that can include things within that spectrum that are um, you know penetration of their body. Um, it could include attempts of penetration or any kind of fondling or unwanted touching. And the rape itself would be, um, you know, penetration without consent with some kind of force coercion. And um, again, I'm, I'm, I want to make sure that um, the sites that help define these, the national um, resources help define these things are, are, are outlined and we align to their definitions. And that would be um, RAIN as well as NSBRC. As we conclude here, I want to give you both a chance to talk about some of the essential services that you offer and how people can reach you for those services. We are definitely here for survivors. We believe survivors and we offer 24-hour hotline services to provide crisis support. We also do um, something called medical accompaniment where we can provide support if a survivor decides to get a rape exam. We also provide court accompaniment. If a survivor is going through the criminal justice process, we can provide an advocate to be with them through that process. And then we also have our therapy services where we offer trauma therapy to help process the trauma if that is what a survivor chooses to do. And we also offer group drop-in groups and, and what we refer to as closed processing therapy groups. And so to learn more about all of that, as well as our prevention services, you can always give our hotline a call at any time. And it's 215-985-3333 to speak with a trained sexual assault counselor. Anything to add to that, Teresa? No, um, we want to say thank you so very much um, for giving place, you know, for this discussion and, and giving us an opportunity as an organization. Uh, War is Philadelphia's Rape Crisis Center. Uh, we are here uh, for our, our citizens and we're here. And I think one of the marvelous things about war is that we will see anyone. We are not all about women. It's War Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. So anyone can give us a call. We, we support all survivors regardless of community. And also, um, it doesn't matter when. Uh, we support people who have lived with this experience for a very, very long time may be you know, much older and, and are still dealing with it. And so please feel free as well to give us a call. We're here for you. Teresa and Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank, thank you, you for, having for having us. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donorswant.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee. Our newsmaker of the week is Sappho Fulton, the founder of Sappho's and Royce Foundation. KYW Sheridan Howard spoke with them about their plan to end the silence around domestic violence, especially among the LGBTQ community. 
Because much of the domestic violence awareness movement has focused on heterosexual relationships, we're shedding light on another dark corner, domestic violence within the LGBTQ communities. According to research, LGBTQ people experience domestic violence at equal or even higher rates compared to their heterosexual counterparts. And Sappho Fulton, founder of Sappho and Leroy's Foundation in Philadelphia, is working to bring awareness to that fact because she says it's a growing problem hidden in plain sight. So we met in the heart of the neighborhood to bring everything out into the open. Sappho, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Sappho, you've been sounding the alarm on what you say is a vacuum. What do you mean by that? I feel like domestic violence, I don't feel like it. It's evident that domestic violence is this, the gun violence story untold. You know, a lot of our trans women are, have been found dead in their cold cases and community is talking about they don't understand. Well, internally, like we understand. We understand a lot of these cases were intimate partner violence, situations going bad, but a lot of it was from people that we knew, the victims knew. So, you know, we want to raise the alarm and start talking about like, how can we raise the cultural consciousness in the QT BIPOC community? There's more domestic violence happening than we're reporting. We haven't created a space where we can have that conversation. So what's missing in Philly? Why isn't this being seen? Why isn't this being discussed? And I guess ultimately, what's missing? We lack crisis intervention. We lack a 24-hour acting domestic violence hotline. We lack adequate counseling and therapy services that are specific for the QT BIPOC community. We lack adequate safe spacing. We need more education and training, violence prevention, and emergency needs such as food, shelter, and clothing. So that's where your organization steps in, right? We have a crisis intervention center we just were given today. Today, we're signing the paperwork in the next seven days, uh, finalizing the paperwork. We were given the house, which was an inherited house in the city of Philadelphia. That We walked through it today. It is, we have to gut it. But it's all right, it's ours. So, you know, we needed a house. Of course, fundraising information to come. And you can um, go to the website and donate, in fact. So now all of this is in play, and you have some pieces on the board. What's the goal going forward? So the goal is we uh, are partnering with uh, Why Not Prosper and they on their initiative, the GROW Project in Harrisburg. There is a, not a lot of talk about that, but that's scheduled to be open. That's for formerly incarcerated trans women. Goal one, to get as many trans women as we can housed, working, and living in safe environments, their own apartments. Two, to up to rehab this crisis intervention center here in the city of Philadelphia. Three, to uh, fundraise and have emergency care packages for persons that experience or are impacted by domestic violence. So let's talk about the misconceptions of domestic violence. Most people don't even think about queer people of color or the QBIPOC community. So it is more prevalent in the QTBIPOC community than we are even aware of. It's a culture issue about reporting. You know, there's a fear in the black community, the black and brown community, let me say that, about calling the police, about domestic cases. We have seen evidence with the Walter Wallace case that, you know, those calls can be devastating, deadly, you know. So, you know, things have been happening, trainings have been happening. I think, shout out to Larry Krasner's office, where the victim services have, you know, updated the procedure and how to respond to cases with transgender persons when the police are called. There's a policy that's on the table that is in place. However, you know, implementing those policies and implementing those standards is definitely what we want to do and raise awareness around that. Like, are the police really calling mental health care providers when they're answering calls to trans folks? Like, are the police really, you know, treating our trans folks humanly when they arrest them, if they have to arrest them in a domestic call? You know, what is actually happening? So we really want to roll our sleeves up. We're on the front line and we're willing to do the work to find out and make sure things are moving in proper perspective. So let's talk about the way things were versus how they are and how you'd like them to be when it comes to support, prevention, all of those efforts. 
So in the past, it was looked at, you know, with a minimal concern. Like you would come, and I've heard when the police come out to two women, that they look at it as a cat fight because they get so many other calls. So they minimize it. So, you know, and in the past, when you would go down and file a restraining order or, you know, to ask for a restraining order to be filed on your partner because it was domestic incidents happening in your household, like you would have to almost lie in order to get an actual restraining order filed. And then you'd have to bring the restraining order back with the police to the person that attacked you. So, like, you're traumatized. The trauma, like, they're not even looking at the fact that, hey, I'm a victim of violence. I'm going through PTSD right now. I need somebody to deal with my mental health at this point. None of that has happened. It's so, like, you know, um, some of the things that are moving in place is the procedure, some supports when a person's filing it, you know, the restraining orders, um, some services once they get to court. So our role is to try to get them and support them from the time they file a restraining order until they go back to court, like, within the seven days after they file a restraining order. Like, kind of support them filing it, sustaining themselves, eating, making sure they're housed, making sure they have clothing, and making sure they have, you know, mental health support, somebody to check in on them, and then maybe even assisting them when they go back to court. So you're saying what needs to be done is this entire process needs to be simplified and given an injection of compassion. Bottom line, thank you. Thank you for simplifying that. So, but that's the reality of it is, like, the process needs to be simpler. One of the things that was said, we were on a call throughout COVID, and they had to talk about domestic violence. And, you know, the call, you know, the conversation was, you know, why is the response from the person that's working behind the desk at the family court so such a flat and, you know, compassion fatigue? That is no excuse. So you're saying at the very least, there needs to be some type of emotional support at the family court when someone goes in to file these complaints. And in other aspects of the system, there just needs to be more compassion. They, they need to have a mental health provider down there. So if we're going to start the process of change, what would you specifically like to see going forward in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, with regard to policy and really just how we treat each other one-on-one when it comes to domestic violence in the LGBTQ communities, as well in particular in the QBIPOC communities? I don't know. I really, I really would like to see us support our city in a healing space. I would like to force increased housing for trans folks, especially trans and children. Um, I would like to see us increase housing for trans women. I would like to see job opportunities, you know. Of course, Kendra Brooks, she has her bill on the table that's talking about the coercive control, like where a person will lose their job if they're arrested for domestic violence. Like, that bill needs to be passed into law. And we need to have, like, a mandatory response, like a mandatory training. And that, I could work with the victims of violence services about how that response needs to look like, what their policy needs to look like. But there needs to be some amendments to the laws around domestic violence, though. And in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, you held a panel called Domestic Violence the Breakthrough. Can you tell us about that? More than anything, we're raising awareness about having, creating a safe space where we can have a co- hard conversations about domestic violence, talking about the breakthrough, talking about the resources that we have, that we used, that were important to us, and some of the things that we felt that were missing as a community. So what do you think is missing? What do we need in the community right now? Some of the things that we found out that were missing, I found out that were missing, was the fact that we don't have any adequate or safe, potentially safe housing, not enough housing, first of all. And we don't have any adequate housing for the trans men community, trans men with children, and a lot of the trans women. You call, and this is not a play or to try to discredit the services that we have available. Like, we're doing the best we can overall. There are four system programs in the city of Philadelphia that are doing phenomenal work. Lutheran Settlement House, um, Women Against Abuse, War, and Congresso. However, that's not nearly enough. So what's the message you'd like to go out on? We're recognizing domestic violence. We're recognizing the severity of it. And we're sounding an alarm. What's your message? Domestic violence is a gun violence story untold in domestic violence.
Thank you for joining us, Effa. Thank you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence or needs help, call the Philadelphia Domestic Violence 24-hour hotline at 1-866-723-3014 for crisis intervention, safety planning, and resources. The calls are free, confidential, and anonymous. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee, here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. She's a community leader of Philadelphia Native, and she's giving back by providing mental health and healing resources. Dr. Helena Fontes is our Changemaker of the Week. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. For Dr. Helena Fontes of the New View Institute, every day is about supporting survivors and fostering healing throughout Philadelphia. It's quite a responsibility. I feel obligated to be able to support the community in which I grew up in because there is a lot of violence on the streets. From day to day, she's busy counseling victims and caring for communities through lending an empathetic ear and teaching healthy coping mechanisms. We believe that healing is holistic and we have to be able to meet you where you are. What I found through the research is that a lot of the violence that we see permeating on the streets of Philadelphia originates in the home. The home is where we learn how to resolve conflict amongst our siblings, have these tough conversations with our parents as we're growing up and becoming um, curious and aware of society and our place in it. And so if we are living in unhealthy and combative conditions within our homes, then of course we take that emotion, that experience out into our communities. Hence, we will not be able to forgive someone who steps on our foot. We will not be able to resolve conflict when we don't see eye to eye about anything that is going on with our neighbor out in the streets. Dr. Fontes says for her, it's a calling. So if we can deal with what happens within our home environment and and handle those issues with compassion and empathy one for another, I'm sure that it will instill love for our neighbor. Newview Institute is hosting events all month long to help forge a new path forward. And we hope to promote an eclectic idea and approach towards healing. If you're interested in learning more about the New View Institute, you can visit newviewinstitute.org or find them on Facebook. They have plenty of events going on this month and every month. If you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please let us know. You can tweet me at ARLE on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. 
That's it for this week's Flashpoint. You can listen again on our Odyssey app, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I'll end us with this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step. The show was produced by Arian Fulcher, Sheridan Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, remember, keep going. Thank you for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.